Coming up next on The Jeff Curley Show, you'll meet a very successful man. He went from homeless teenager to best-selling author and entrepreneur. His journey just ahead. Many are predicting that the worst is yet to come, which is unfortunate, said one person here. Until now, they've enjoyed the reputation of being the nation's icebox. Watched a burglar in his home this morning by webcam. As a journalist of over 25 years, stories are what make my world turn. Reporting live from the Dallas Newsroom tonight, Jeff Crilly, Fox 4 News. But in 2008, I took the jump from my familiar life and started a PR firm from my home. We're talking about anyone with a camcorder like the one I'm using becomes a television network. We started slowly growing the company and we now have over a hundred clients and we've branched into the world of live digital broadcasting. I now own eight different TV studios and have a huge team. And the stories that I now get to share are sometimes the most important of my life. Life has a funny way of coming around full circle. This is the Jeff Crilly Show. Well, if you watch this show for any length of time, you know I love featuring successful business owners and entrepreneurs, and I especially love those people who came from humble beginnings. And I can't think of a better person to interview about that than Trevor uh, Goodchild. He, uh, he was a homeless teen. Trevor, thanks for coming on the show. Jeff, it's so uh, much of a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I want you to share your journey with us. Uh, how did you end up homeless as a teenager? Well, so, you know, I lived in an abusive home. Uh, as a result of which I had to run away to save my own life. And I ended up leaving for years on the streets, in and out of homeless shelters, in and out of foster homes, and some of them were abusive as well. And so I ended up having to keep running away and living on my own. I ended up living in a cardboard box in an alleyway across the street from the University of Texas that I would later end up graduating from with two degrees. Wow. Tell us about the stick to the drive, the determination, because um, at, your life could have gone down another path. Well, you know, it's fascinating that you mentioned that as far as a fork in the road, because about three or four years ago, I happened to talk to the director of the shelter uh, that I had stayed in when I was a homeless teenager. And he let me know the statistics were pretty alarming. Out of all the kids who were homeless at the same time I was, we're talking somewhere around 200. I was the only one that made it. The rest of the kids ended up back on the streets, back homeless, on drugs, dealing drugs, in jail, or worst of all, dead. And out of all of those, I managed to survive. And so I've questioned, why did I make it when other people didn't? And I think it came down to simply the fact that I didn't have a self-image inside of my mind of myself as a homeless teenager. I saw myself as being successful, and I was reading books like um, Anthony Dimelo, The Way to Love, or Alan Watts, Behold the Spirit, or Transactional Analysis in Psychology and Sociology. While I'm living in a cardboard box, I'm educating myself and learning about these things. And eventually I was able to analyze my own behavior and find out what influenced me to behave in certain ways and systematically work on replacing behaviors that were destructive with behaviors that were prosperous. And that ended up getting me from a cardboard box in an alleyway to graduating the University of Texas with a couple of degrees getting into UT with a recommendation letter from the president of Austin Community College. It's because I, I didn't give up on myself, but also it's because I had a very specific image of who I was, what I was gonna do, and what I was going to achieve. I think a lot of times when people become homeless, they tend to self-identify with their situation instead of who they are aside from the role they play in life or external factors. As a result, I was able to create the life that I wanted to live 
from in here until it matched out here. Wow, so inspiring. And Trevor, you are obviously joining us from our Austin Bureau. Living in Austin, you, you must drive by the place where you used to live in a box. I mean, what is that like? You know, it's, it's really interesting, the whole time capsule aspect of how, you know, the art of placemaking. There was a frontiers class I took at UT. Uh, I majored in geography there, which has nothing to do with what I do for a living, of course. But uh, I love college. And one of the classes was about placemaking and about how a regular spot can have so many different meanings to different people for different reasons that you just see on the street. You think it's a regular spot, but the art of placemaking when we're really assigning meaning to something changes the way physical objects and places and intersections have meaning to people. And for me, there have been definitely more than one occasions uh, I've driven by places I used to stay at. For instance, the first apartment I got off the streets at 19 was 4556 Avenue A in Hyde Park. I drive by that apartment sometimes and just reminisce the, wow, this was my first apartment off the streets. This is where I started. Now I'm in a two bedroom house in Hyde Park, right? So it's really fascinating to see the circle of life and how things sometimes end up like that. But the meaning of these places will never change for me because they were the start from where I ended up. Yeah. And absolutely right place at the right time when it comes to Facebook. I want to talk about uh, your, your business. You are a Facebook ad policy specialist, but you used to work for Facebook. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, as recent as uh, just a few months ago, I've worked at Facebook in ads. I've worked in Facebook at tech, supporting Facebook servers and remote access tools. So if, let's say, Facebook servers were crashing because Nike ran 50,000 ads on Black Friday in 30 seconds and Facebook servers were like, oh, we can't handle this. And they start to crash on your end as the business owner or ad agency. You're seeing a white screen trying to load one of the ad tools like ads manager or business manager. On my end, I was getting the phone call on my Facebook iPhone at 3 a.m. in the morning. Oh, the servers are down. The servers are down. Facebook has just lost $50 million because ads globally aren't live. So then I'd have to get in and work with the engineers in Menlo Park to get them to write a different piece of code that would stabilize the platform for Facebook users and advertisers. And then more recently, I worked as a project manager at Facebook, now retitled Meta. It's funny to work at the same company, but now with a different name. And that was a really interesting role because I helped the creator economy. I was working with influencers on Instagram and Facebook that had, you know, millions of followers, a hundred of thousands of followers, helping them beta test our new products for Facebook, things like stars on reels, digital collectibles that connected uh, NFTs with Facebook profiles. So projects that I worked on were in the news for things like that. So I've, I've done pretty much anything you can think of at Facebook. I've done it. So. It's been a really enlightening experience to understand Facebook from an advertising perspective to an engineering perspective to a project management perspective. Yeah, and you're a very popular podcaster. As I was doing homework for this show, I just put your name into to YouTube and there are literally dozens and dozens of videos. We've got one, it was a recent uh, show you did. Uh, when you're invited to speak, what are you normally asked to talk about? Well, so what, what I'm commonly asked to talk about are really the hot topics in the advertising market right now because there is over 3 billion daily active users on Facebook every single day. The way Facebook decides to flag content 
both for community standards, which regulates regular everyday non-advertiser, you know, the area dads and the soccer moms, you know, everything they post. But then there's also the advertising policy that specifically regulate the ads that advertisers run. And so I've worked with everyone from SMBs to uh, marketing teams of Tony Robbins, Harv Ecker, Dean Graziosi, Molly Mahoney, Mari Smith. Um, the uh, Black Expat uh, reality show, actually, with uh, Juanita Ingram. She was recently working with me as well. And so what I tend to talk about when I'm going on a podcast regarding Facebook is the fact that the system Facebook currently has set up relies on automations to scan ads that are non-compliant and flag them for violating Facebook's ad policies. The unfortunate part about that is whether you're a multi-billion dollar corporation or celebrity or you're a small local business, Facebook doesn't add clarity or context as to why you've been shut down, what part of your funnel even got you on the radar in the first place. So you're left with a dead ad account. Your money-making machine, right, is now stopped. So your clients, if you're an ad agency, are yelling, where... Where are my ads at? Why? You know, my, my dog died. My wife left me and it's all because of Facebook. And so, you know, you hear these things uh, and, and very well could be possible. I'm not saying it's not, but the point is, is that Facebook is so huge. It's outgrown the infrastructure the company originally was started at when it first opened up to the world for advertising around 2007. They, it's similar to a, a city like Austin, where I live, which is a wonderful city, but the city planners didn't plan on growth. They didn't build that into the infrastructure. So we're seeing a lot of issues with that now because of that. It's a very similar analogy with Facebook, with the engineering teams, the marketing teams, the advertising teams, the community operation teams, policing the regular content and the tech. There's It's built on a very shaky foundation. As a result, they've outsourced so much labor to other countries that if you're an advertiser and you're trying to get help Maybe you're a mom and pop store. Like I've worked with jewelers before and 50% of your annual revenue comes from that Black Friday sale that you're running Facebook ads to. And you're so desperate to get this sale going on. But then one word that you innocently use in the wrong way gets you banned. Now yes. what happens? 50% of your annual income is down. These are the people I help. This is what I talk about when I'm going on interviews specifically about Facebook is how the automations work. What, what are best practices, how to avoid getting banned, and just some good good practices for running ads in general to make sure that you're not stuck in Facebook jail where no one wants to be. Sure. I, I went on the internet and I just went to Google Images and we, we pulled some just random pictures of, of Facebook advertising. Obviously, they depend on advertising to, to make their engine work. So when a client calls you, it's usually like a marketing firm that's suddenly uh, in this you know, uh, Facebook jail and they're saying, Trevor, help? Or how do you get paid? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, my client acquisition funnel is mainly, you know, SEO. I blog. My blog, jetskishaman.com, is number one on Google for all the key terms for Facebook. You know, disable Facebook ad account, new Facebook ad policies 2023, you'll find me at the top. So people generally find me because they're frustrated and they have no answers from Facebook because their outsourced department for ads doesn't have any context on what's going on. And so they're Googling, they're going on Reddit, they're going on Quora, they're going on LinkedIn, they're going on YouTube, for instance, and they find me. They find the videos that I provide for educational content on, you know, uh, pitfalls to avoid, what to not do when you're advertising on Facebook, not just what you should do. 
And so they find me in, you know, uh, folks like Harv Ecker, uh, author of The Good Millionaire, best-selling author. I worked with him for years. And what happens is either through word of mouth or through SEO with my blog or another reference, they find me. And so we start off with a discovery call to see if I can even help them. And then after that, I help provide auditing services for their funnel and pre-screening services to make sure they never get shut down again. Wow. Um, Trevor, I'm so impressed that uh, you're so entrepreneurial that you saw, man, there might be more money on the other side helping people with my former employer. Uh, so bravo for that. You're also a, a best-selling author. So we're going to pull up um, a couple of books that you've written and we're going to put them on the screen. Uh, let's start with Zero Point Horizon. It's a sci-fi book. Tell us about that. Oh, this is, this is interesting. So I had never written a book before in my life. And I had no plans really to write a book. And I read this Medium article online by the sci-fi author who said he'd made a million dollars in the past, uh, I think, eight years uh, just self-publishing sci-fi. So me being a curious person, I went to his Amazon and I read some of his books just to see, you know, what's this guy who's making a million dollars self-publishing on Amazon? What's he about? And his writing was trash. It was so bad. <laughs> I was angry. I was like, wow, how is this man making this much money publishing such trash fiction? And so, you know, like many entrepreneur endeavors that start out with you seeing a gap in the market and a demand that's not being filled, like Uber or Lyft or anything else, they saw something that wasn't being met for a pain point that wasn't being solved. And they wanted to invent something that didn't exist because they were frustrated with what was currently available on the market in a very similar manner. Uh, I just sat down and wrote a book. It took me a year. Uh, but I finished it. It became a bestseller, hitting the number three spot on Amazon last year. And it's about a tech who hot wires a UFO, jumps through a black hole to Alba Centauri. Of course, there's a girl. Of course, he's following a girl. It's always an element of romance. And while we have the typical sci-fi tropes of the, you know, the monsters, the space flights, the UFOs, and the action sequences, there's also an element of, I would say, kind of self-help or humanism in it, where the main character, Jack Ransom, he spends the book also, in addition to fighting off space monsters and trying to find the space princess and all that great stuff, he spends this time figuring out if he can use perception to perceive perception to evolve his ability to become a better person over time. And so there's that element of self-reflection. Uh, so you get to see through the character's arc the development of how a person approaches a problem and solves it on different levels. Outstanding. And then the second book, um, Asteroid City. Tell us about that. So Asteroid City is a follow-up sequel to the Jack Ransom Chronicles. And in this case, there's a new evil alien force introduced with a, a giant Death Star-sized ship that has got the Earth held hostage. And it's fascinating because for both of these books, I interviewed people at Lockheed and Martin. I interviewed scientists that are specializing in fields with ophthalmology because I wanted to figure out well, if I added this detail in, how would I scientifically make it provable? Like, what if what if we could see magnetic fields just like moths or birds do? What would we need to have for that to happen? So I found the scientific data for that and put it in the book that it's a certain cone that we would have to have inside the eyeball that would allow us to perceive those magnetic fields. Will we ever get it in real life? I don't know. But that's part of the fun of science fiction is the science part. I love to geek out on and make sure there's hard science backing up the uh, the the fiction of the book, you know. All right, and, the, and this is obviously a series. Is it a trilogy, or do you see this going on like Harry Potter with uh, many <laughs> many uh, novels? 
Well, I've got the upcoming book, uh, A Memory of Saturn. It's the third one that I'm about to start working on. I've got a new audio book that's going to be in a spinoff universe called Infinite Waltz 29.9 that's coming out and a short story called The Constable's Timepiece that's also coming out. And then I've recently, as of uh, just yesterday, signed up to work with a major uh, famous author I can't mention just yet. Uh, to co-author uh, some of his books in uh, the year after this coming up here. It's going to be a huge deal. I'm very excited. Well, obviously, Trevor, I know a lot of people want to get in touch with you. You have a couple of websites. Uh, how do people get in touch with you? Well, the best way to get in touch with me is Trevor at TrevorWGoodchild.com, my email. But if you want to check out my sci-fi books, feel free to go to TrevorWGoodchild.com. And if you want to check out all the information with free tips that will save you thousands of headache hours trying to deal with Facebook, go to my Facebook ad policy business blog at jetskishaman.com. Outstanding. Trevor, thanks for sharing your story with our, with our audience. It's been a pleasure. That's it for now. We'll see you next time.